Raji, welcome to this episode of the New Space India podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Narayan. Thanks for having me here. Let's begin with uh, talking about uh, what exactly is uh, space security. Space security, I think it can mean a couple of different things. One, how you use space assets for security-related functions, security missions, military uh, on non-military options, but security uh, functions and so on and so forth. But the other aspect of the security of space assets in outer space are on the ground, the ground infrastructure that is used for space functions. So it can mean a couple of different things and the space security challenges, of course, from multiple perspectives are growing, uh, not just for India, but I think uh, across the entire Indo-Pacific or the Asia-Pacific, as we used to call, um, or even globally, I think the competition is picking up uh, in terms of the space security um, uh, dynamics. How did you get started in the space security realm? And uh, is this something that uh, you know, was present within the Indian context for a long time? Uh, no, I okay. I got into space and space security. I think this was about a uh, about a slightly more than a decade uh, when Cipri reached out to us. The uh, Cipri is considered the mother of think tanks. This uh, Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. Um, so they wanted to do a, a conference on the Indian space program, and I was quite eager to be part of that because you know if there is going to be a publication that's going to come out from Cipri, you know I wanted to be part of that. But I think I had some bit of prior background and more of the technology issues. For instance, my PhD was on US technology export control policy uh, as it applied to India. Um, so I did have some technology related interests and at least the technology policy, how it played out and so on and so forth, especially uh, in the, uh, in the and during the time till about 2000, for instance, uh, the US and India were not on the same page. So that technology politics and policy, how that played out, I had some interest on that. But this came, uh, the space conference from CIPRI uh, came, uh, and I thought that was a fantastic opportunity. So I started looking at, for instance, the uh, India's own changing space orientation from a purely military, um, from a purely uh, peaceful and civilian application um, and shifting somewhat um, uh, more towards the security side of things, the military operations, uh, military options uh, in terms of using for what we call the passive military applications, uh, surveillance, intelligence, and reconnaissance. Um, and this has come to be uh, come to be somewhat more accepted um, by all militaries around the world that you would use space for passive military applications. Um, so India was moving in that direction for quite some time. But then it happened, uh, you had the uh, Chinese, first Chinese uh, successful ASAT test in uh, 2007, January. And I think that prompted a bigger uh, dialogue, bigger kind of con uh, conversation in the Indian context. And I think uh, this was the time I was slowly getting into that uh, sort of uh, uh, the domain. And I also saw that there weren't and too many people working on this area. They were, uh, they were at that point of time. And even now, the number of people who work on these set of issues is fairly a small uh, number. Uh, it's a small community. And I thought that um, there was also an absence of the Indian perspective at some of the multilateral and regional platforms, whether it is the ASEAN Regional Forum or the European Union or the, multi, uh, or the UN uh, related institutions. There was an Indian perspective missing. Of course, ISRO and the uh, other uh, folks from the Indian establishment have always been part of these deliberations, whether it is the meetings in Vienna, for instance, at the UN USA. Um, UN USA 
UN COPUS, the Committee on the Peaceful Use of Outer Space. All of them, all of these meetings had fair amount of Indian representations, uh, but ISRO, most of the time, they were more of an observer rather than taking an active part in and contributing to, in that sense, uh, to the conversations in this multilateral platforms. So I found an opportunity to get involved uh, more in these kind of debates, uh, providing an Indian uh, voice as to how India, and an Indian perspective, because I would not say that I character I managed to summarize all the various Indian viewpoints, but at least I, um, I thought it was useful to provide an Indian perspective on some of these emerging uh, major uh, bigger issues with regard to uh, space in a sense provided primarily from a strategic and security perspective but uh, i thought that was still a useful thing uh, so since 2007 there has been an increasing debate within india as to how india should respond to uh, the chinese asat test uh, until the chinese asat test india by and large considered that these are you know, these are more expensive toys. These are big boys toys. We don't need to be concerned about them. So we left it to primarily to the U.S. and Russia to, you know, they were the big boys in this in this um, in this club, and they would have to deal with all the militarization of space, weaponization of space, or even the ASATs. Uh, India did not play as much of an attention um, to ASATs in that sense from. A from India's own direct security perspective. But 2007 ASAT test by China was a wake-up call for India to the kind of security challenges that lie in its own neighborhood. And space being a global common, it did not matter if it was near neighborhood or not. But even then, uh, I think China's conducting of that test was as a, surely an eye-opener for India to the kind of sophisticated capabilities and the kind of militarization efforts made by uh, China in our own neighborhood. And that how China could also use space to uh, sort of deny space to India or uh, deny an advantage to India in terms of uh, its ability to use space for in the military context and so on and so forth. So the 2007 ASAC was something that had a more determining effect on India's space program. Since then, I think we have become much more, and I think this was uh, this also led to uh, conversations across the board. For instance, you have the political leadership. Uh, then uh, Defense Minister Pranab Mukherjee talked about it as to how India needs to develop our own um, its own kind of deterrent capabilities. Uh, you have Anthony talking about it. Uh, later, he became the defense when he became the defense minister. Uh, you also have the Air Force leadership, uh, as well as the uh, Indian um, uh, Space Research Organization, the ISRO leadership talking about it. So there was, a, uh, there were a number of statements that came from across the board that articulated the need for India to develop our own deterrent capabilities, our own ways to protect our assets in outer space. So this has been something that's been going on for a, quite some time now. And I think uh, by 12, 2012, um, then uh, DRDO chief, the Defense Research and Development Organization head, uh, Dr. V.K. Saraswat came out and said, we do have the building blocks, but at the end of the day, in India, this was going to be a political decision. And uh, Prime Minister Modi, of course, took the decision in March 2019. At least go, uh, we conducted the uh, anti-satellite test in March, uh, end of March 2019. Uh, 
which was uh, after the uh, political uh, go ahead was given for the uh, for the test um, so that's that's where we are and i i believe we will be developing additional capabilities to secure our assets as more as a deterrent measure but i think we are still kind of we are not going to stop with one asat test and that india has plans at least going by the statements and uh, uh, materials that are available from the drdo website in a sense it's fascinating that you remember the dates and the chronology of the you know people so very well <laughs> thank you yeah this has been a bread and butter for the space security people i would think yeah absolutely so one of the interesting things that i wanted you to comment on is uh, why was space security not such a big topic when uh, india was emerging with its own space program in the 1960s or the 70s because i would say that uh, that was when the hot topic of using space for weaponization and militarization was probably much more hotter than what it is today with uh, you know no rules established between yeah. countries so why do you see this narrative of space security increased after the chinese tests in 2007 against not india not being so vocal about it in the 1960s no oh, india was absolutely vocal in the 60s and 70s um, not as much in the 60s but the 70s and 80s india was extremely vocal uh, in fact uh, i wrote a longish uh, piece for the india review which is a uh, uh, one of the one of the peer review journals uh, we had brought out actually a special issue sometime in november 2011 where i tracked essentially the kind of statements and uh, changes that are coming about the fluctuations in india's policy following the 2007 asat test looking at primarily the impact of the chinese asat test on india's space reorientation uh, but there have been a, a few other articles also uh, and where i kind of look at for instance in the 70s and 80s we were extremely vocal and we were uh, vehemently critical of uh, the us and uh, soviet uh, um, uh, asat program as well as the whole trends towards the weaponization so weaponization is not entirely new but the but the big difference is that the space domain was primarily dominated by two players at that point of time you could still talk about uh limiting the impact of some of those uh, um, uh those trends in because it only had two players primarily uh and also to write rules of the road um, to write uh, some sort of a, whether it is a uh, normative exercise or to engage in a legally uh, developing a legally binding mechanism all of them all of those such exercises were sim much simpler much easier because you had limited number of players to deal with in a sense uh but india was uh, absolutely always critical and i think indian position began to change sometime in early 2001 uh, and uh, one of the first instances that i uh, i can track uh, i can remember where india began to change or at least began to have some a more nuanced uh, position on some of these issues was india's response to uh, president uh, us president bush's uh, missile defense speech in may 2001 uh, where he talked about as to how we need to look at missile defense system and so on and so forth and i think india did begin to see the effect or at least the impact of that even in the indian case for instance if india because india was already beginning to um feel the threats the missile and uh, missiles as well as other nuclear security uh, nuclear challenges both from china and pakistan especially the proliferation that has been happening from china to pakistan so this has always been a growing concern and of course the proliferation of short and medium range missiles the m9 missiles and m11 missiles which china developed only for 
export purposes and which China had given to Pakistan, which was a growing concern in India. So from the late 90s onwards, uh, India has been scouting for a missile defense system and so on and so forth. In fact, uh, then leadership had talked about uh, with uh, President Kalam, uh, who was then kind of scouting for the best technology available. He went to the US, he talked to the Israelis and so on and so forth. So India was already kind of beginning to appreciate the need for a missile defense system and then uh, Bush's speech happened. So President uh, Prime Minister Vajpayee actually immediately congratulated within a few hours of his speech. Uh, Prime Minister congratulated um, uh, on this particular thing, on this particular step and uh, saw the utility in kind of uh, moving towards that. Uh, but of course, the domestic criticism uh, was quite uh, sharp at that point of time. And once again, we were going back to a position saying that uh, space must be useful, uh, used for peaceful purposes only and so on and so forth. And, and that's been India's rhetoric. So if you look at any number of statements at the CD, the conference in disarmament in Geneva, which is a UN body that is responsible for space from a strategic purpose or arms control uh, perspective. Um, so um, statements at the CD, statements in Vienna, the COPUS, so, or even in the Indian parliament, you look at any of the Indian statements, we always emphasize the use of space for peaceful uses and non-weaponization was em uh, emphatically um, sort of highlighted. But since 2001, India began to have a somewhat more relaxed approach to this issue and began to see the utility of India, for instance, the need, the need for India to develop some of these capabilities and therefore began to go slow on this. But again, India went back and forth. And uh, I think uh, India, whenever it came under sharp criticism in the domestic context and so on and so forth, India began to once again move back to the old comfortable position saying that, yeah, we will use space only for peaceful purposes and so on and so forth. Uh, in the 80s, otherwise, India was very, very vehement, very, very critical, very loud and clear about where, it, where India stood with regard to weaponization, anti-satellite tests conducted by uh, Soviets and, the, uh, and uh, the US. So I think we were not shy about it at that point of time. From the 60s onwards, we have been making claims about, uh, we have been making very loud statements about where India stood on some of these issues. But the, I think what is today somewhat more problematic for, for India is the fact that you have a neighbor who's developing many of these capabilities, not just ASATs, but whole range of counter space capabilities, and that it might have a direct impact on India's security. I think that is much more, um, much more pertinent for India in that sense. And I think India is therefore uh, once again beginning to make that assumption about what we need to do. So um, one point of the difference uh, between the earlier decades and now, one, it was that India was also a developing power. Uh, even now, India is a developing country, but in even even so, I think India's capabilities in this d domain was a lot more uh, nascent. Uh, India did not have India was. Uh, pursuing a space program purely for its social and developmental aspects. But today, India's space program has grown much beyond just the um, social and economic aspects to looking out for communication, looking at for India's ISR requirements, looking for uh, PNT, the positioning, navigation, timing functions. So India's space program has grown to 
um, sort of uh, integrate all the different sets of requirements and functions, whether it is in the social domain, uh, economic, uh, or um, weather predictions, or, uh, or or military and hard security um, uh, related uh, requirements in a sense. So I think with the growing set of requirements, you also needed to be much more concerned about what's happening in the space domain and how India's assets, uh, we have made uh, significant uh, uh, economic investment in this regard. Therefore, we also have a stake in what, what's going on there and what might impact on how it might impact on our own limited assets that we have in place. Um, and I think if you combine the kind of services associated with the, our space program, as well as the economics, uh, including the ground infrastructure, I think we have a sizable stake, economic stake in, uh, in our space program. And therefore, we are that much more concerned about how and how we are able to maintain this, uh, maintain space as a safe, secure, and sustainable domain going into the future. You did uh, explain two terms that were very interesting, and I think uh, we can dwell down a little bit for the you know average listener. Okay. One is sure. uh, weaponization, and the other is the militarization. Mil what do they right. actually mean? So uh, absolutely, I think uh, those two terms are so uh, interchangeably used by a lot of people, but I think they mean two two very different things. Uh, one is that it is, uh, for instance. Uh, Militarization. Militarization is something that has happened for a very long time now. That is, states continue to use military uh, space assets for a number of military functions, mostly what it is called the passive military applications, which is essentially primarily the uh, intelligence, uh, surveillance, reconnaissance, and so on and so forth. Uh, but uh, I think we are... Uh, even earlier in the 70s, for instance, I think uh, even those kind of uh, aspects of use of... Um, those aspects of space use were somewhat more restricted and there were issues about it. But I think over a period of time, states have continued to um, sort of come to their understanding that these are, these are acceptable, these are okay to, uh, okay to be used and uh, we should not worry about it. So, and especially if you look at the uh, 1990, uh, the US military operation in Iraq and the subsequent uh, uh, sort of uh, military operations in Afghanistan and so on and so forth, has clearly shown how space can be used as a force multiplier and other, uh, other militaries around the world, particularly China, has studied the impact of uh, how um, space had facilitated uh, the US military operations to a large extent. So there is that particular aspect that others have studied. And that's a significant difference that I see between the uh, Cold War and now. Uh, during the Cold War, space was used mostly for strategic function, so it's early warning systems, uh, ex execution of arms control agreements to verify those um, agreements and so on and so forth. So space had somewhat a, a, a sort of a limited use and primarily from in the strategic domain. But today, space has permeated to conventional military operations, and that makes it trickier. Um, so uh, since 90s, the US has been using space in a big way in their conventional military operations. And seeing how they have been doing very successfully, uh, others are also kind of copying that, and others have learned the, uh, learn to use space in a much more effective fashion in their conventional military operations. So that is giving way to uh, militarization up to a point is fine, but I think the minute you start weaponizing outer space, and I think that's the dangerous trend, putting, um, again, 
definition, a classic, a clear definition of what is weapon in space or what is weaponization. I think it's very, very, very uh, a tricky thing to clearly uh, define because I think uh, any object that is sent to space can be used uh, in an nefarious fashion. It can be used in a dangerous fashion to deny uh, your adversary an advantage in a sense. So space can be used. Anything that is there in our space can be used in in uh, in a in that in that sort of a function but i think uh, essentially we can start trying about for instance china for instance china and russia they have uh, uh, they have a draft treaty in place um, it has not been accepted as yet but the draft treaty for the prevention of the placement of weapons in outer space so russia and china for instance they say that nobody should place weapons in outer space but my bigger point is that you don't necessarily have to put weapons in space to weaponize outer space no country, no sane country in their sane minds will put, will actually put a weapon in outer space. Um, today, for instance, you have the Outer Space Treaty, which came in, the, in, in 1967. It talks about limiting the placement, of, it restricts countries from placing WMD, weapons of mass destruction in outer space. But it's completely silent about other sorts of weapons, conventional weapons in outer space. But my own sense is that no country is going to actually put a weapon in space, but without doing that, without actually placing a weapon in, outer, in orbit, you can actually weaponize space. And the, one of the first and earlier uh, demonstrations, so the last ASAT, in the, in the previous era, when, if, uh, when you look at it, the last of the ASAT tests, I think that happened uh, was done by the US in 1983. Uh, but in 2007, China broke a couple of decades moratorium, that unwritten moratorium that existed, and started, gave way to a fresh competition in the ASAT, for instance. So the return of ASATs with the Chinese anti-satellite testing, the first successful anti-satellite testing in January 2007, was a major development. Then it gave way to next year, uh, the U.S. conducting its own ASAT test, the burn frost that happened. Uh, but the U.S. test happened at this in somewhat similar altitude as that of India's ASAT test in 2019. Uh, we were doing it about 100, under 100, 300 kilometer altitude, uh, whereas China's was done at a much higher altitude, resulting in a large um, cloud of satellite uh, um, orbit, orbital debris, which is going to float around for decades now. It's not going to go away that quickly burn up that quickly. Um, so ASAT test is one way of weaponizing space. And ASAT, therefore, I would say it has an inherently destabilizing property and characteristics in a sense and should have been avoided. Uh, if China had not uh, started that ASAT test, I, I, I would think that we may not have gone down that path. And I think increasingly there are more countries going to go down this path. Uh, Japan maybe one uh, because Japan has already allocated some funds for the next year in next for the next in the next year budget cycle uh, for the development of some sort of an interceptor capability. Um, uh, uh, French uh, the Fra France is already talking about they uh, they released a national defense space strategy last year, and I am assuming that they would be developing some sort of an interceptor capability uh, for themselves as well. Uh, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't put it past uh, for, uh, when, you, when I look around, I think there are several more uh, countries that can go down this path in a very quick fashion and all driven by the security kind of competition that is picking up in a space. So ASAT is one set of things. Then you also have co-orbit lasers. So these are things, again, you don't have to shoot, um, you know, place a weapon in outer space, but you can use um, assets on the ground 
to target assets in outer space assets in space assets so it doesn't have to be necessarily placing a space weapon to weaponize outer space and then there are a series of uh, other counter space capabilities uh, you have a, a, a lot more cheaper uh, and easily accessible counter space technologies like cyber uh, or electronic warfare in outer space um, radio frequency interference because a, a radio frequency interference can happen because of the crowded nature of outer space but i think there are also intentional uh, attacks of that kind to create disturbances in in a certain radio frequencies and so on and so forth but cyber and electronic warfare have been uh, used several times more as a way of testing and sending a message to the adversary at this point of time not to create a long term disruption but they have created temporary disruptions or uh, uh, gone all the way up to uh, taking the control of a command and control of a particular satellite in certain operations, but just uh, left at that. So in a sense, um, certain countries, China, for instance, has been uh, exercising this particular option in the last few, almost for a decade now, uh, has been uh, targeting the US satellites uh, in an, on a number of occasions. I wrote a paper last year uh, for the UN Institute for Disarmament Research, UNIDA, uh, looking at the space, uh, cyber and electronic warfare in outer space. So I tracked down uh, each of these incidents that have happened. Um, so it's uh, sort of, it, these, are, these are already happening in a sense. And then you have a range of uh, sort of uh, uh, civilian activities, but that can actually now begin to kind of create problems uh, in outer space. A whole range of activities such as, for instance, the uh, rendezvous proximity operations, or what you call the on-orbit satellite servicing options, in a sense, um, kind of capabilities that you develop for such purposes. Uh, on-orbit satelliting, uh, satellite servicing, essentially these refer to uh, repairing a particular satellite or your satellite refueling and those kind of activities so that you can extend the life of a satellite in a sense. So these are already happening and, uh, but these capabilities can also be used in a dangerous manner, in a sort of, if you're against a particular adversary, especially during conflict, how that might be used. I think that is, uh, that is given way to uh, a lot more problem in a sense. We are not clear as to how some of these capabilities might be used. Again, uh, to remove satellite debris and so on and so forth, because debris has become a huge challenge. Uh, most of the debris is, is a result of the fact that there have been several countries operating in outer space for several decades. So um, there are old um, uh, spacecrafts, um, junk of that kind, but there are also uh, sort of uh, man-made debris because of the, an ASAT test and so on and so forth. So there is, uh, there's a huge amount of space debris that is floating around there that needs to be cleaned up uh, if we have to be able to continue uh, our access to space in, a, in an uninterrupted fashion. Um, so states are also investing, states as well as private sector are, are becoming parties where they invest in some of the technologies to clean up outer space of get rid of some of the space debris pieces. Um, so some of the states that have uh, invested in these technologies, for instance, the robotic arm to uh, remove a particular satellite or maneuver a particular satellite. But the worry is that if, if you have the capability to today to, uh, to reposition a particular satellite because it's coming close to one of your satellites or whatever, or uh, a space debris, you can use the same capability tomorrow to on an adversary. So and and we are not even we have not even begun the process of 
you know, talking to each other on the legality of it, the regulatory aspects of these kind of activities on orbit satellite and satellite servicing options. Uh, we haven't even begun to look at these issues in a very concerted manner. So I think uh, there are a range of capabilities that can be used in outer space that would essentially mean weaponizing outer space without actually putting in weapons, uh, weapons in outer space. But um, uh, uh, sometime end of, uh, sometime last month, you also had an incident where an event where Russia reject, uh, released a projectile into outer space from one of their Russian inspector satellite. Russia said this was not uh, any anti-satellite. This was not a co-orbit laser or an anti-satellite, just that they were uh, engaged in. But uh, much of the Western commentary, particularly the uh, US came out in very clear terms that this was a space weapon and space weapon to be used for that first time in that sense, uh, re releasing a projectile into the outer space from within, the, within outer space. This was something that was done for the first time. So this marked a significant event for a lot of us, but uh, Russia obviously said this was nothing unusual an operation, that this was their normal Russian satellite in inspection operation. That is essentially they're sending a satellite to repair a particular satellite or remotely you know, servicing a particular satellite that there was nothing unusual about it. So these are the kind of activities that are taking place in outer space, in a sense, weaponizing outer space without actually placing a weapon in outer space. And that's the difference between militarization and weaponization. Militarization refers to a range of activities that are somewhat seen as passive, uh, intelligence gathering, surveillance and so on and so forth. Those are come to be somewhat more acceptable to, in today's world because every major military today uses space for these applications. Fascinating insights, uh, Rajiv. The follow-up question, you know, to quickly to this is uh, you talked about, you know, things like weapons and, you know, space debris. I know that, for example, there is no international accepted uh, definition of where space exactly starts. Mm. Does the international community also suffer from not having or, for example, is there an internationally accepted definition as to what is a space weapon or what is a space debris and how countries can accept each other's uh, you know, terminologies? I think that's a, a, that's a million dollar challenge uh, even now. And I was, um, I was fortunate uh, to be part of the uh, UN, one of the UN efforts that happened over the last couple of years uh, in 2018. Uh, the UN uh, had uh, formed the U UNGGE, the group of governmental experts on uh, PAROS, uh, the, uh, that's the instrument, uh, the prevention of arms race in outer space. This has, been a, uh, this has been a measure that has been debated, discussed from UN in, within the UN General Assembly from 1985 onwards. It comes to uh, CD, but you know, there, have not been, there has not been a single substantive discussion on PAROS even now. But there was a more concerted effort with this particular UNGG that was constituted in 2018, 2019. And I was part of the uh, UNGG as a technical advisor. So I, I had the chance of being in the two two week long meetings in 2018 and 19. And one can see how uh, divided the house is when you talk about um, how do you define a space weapon or space debris and what, what, whatever in, in that sense? Uh, you cannot, there's no clear understanding of what's peaceful use of outer space. In the 1960s, you had a very somewhat more uh, limited use of, um, a limited understanding of peaceful use of outer space. 
But today with activities expanding in outer space, states expanding their activities in outer space, uh, states have also uh, come to a, a broader understanding or definition of how you would um, indicate what a peaceful use of outer space is. Um, similarly, you do not have a clear definition of what weaponization of outer space or what a space weapon is or what a space debris is. And space debris, for instance, uh, many countries do want to discuss space debris within the context of the uh, of the security and strategic side of developments within space. But uh, there is another group of countries which prefer that space debris is a very civilian-oriented subject and that it should be dis discussed only within in, in Vienna, for instance, that is within the UN COPUS, the UN Committee on the Peaceful Use of Outer Space, and that it is not for the Conference on Disarmament, which is the Geneva-based UN body for um, strategic um, uh, sector of the space thing, to debate. Um, so th this kind of... a institutional um, sort of a differences as to where some of these issues fall, whether they should fall within the UN corpus in Vienna or within, or within the um, conference and disarmament CD in Geneva. This has been a major debate with no clear um, uh, solution or no clear understanding of uh, how this is to be done. Um, so the UN corpus is a, it's been a fairly, is a fairly representative body with a large number of countries as members uh, and it has the backing of all the major play players and so on and so forth but the one big lacunae of the UN corpus is that it has a limited mandate the limited mandate that it only talks about it only has mandate over the peaceful and civilian applications of outer space activities it does not concern with uh, space security or space arms control issues, none of those issues are going to be developed uh, or going to be discussed or developed within the framework of the UN Corpus. So you have that organization, an effective organization, but because of the limited mandate, that is not going to be address, addressing uh, such kind of issues. But having said that, I must add that the um, there has been a space debris mitigation guidelines that has been developed by the COPUS. So in a sense, they have somewhat expanded their scope in a way to say that space debris, it can also be a result of a lot of natural uh, active actions in space. And therefore we might expand the mandate to include space debris issues and so on and so forth. But I think uh, when, even when the Paros GG was uh, um, in debate over 2018, 19, you could see that there were a lot of countries who felt that space debris also needed to be debated within the context of uh, the, um, uh, the CD, the Conference on Disarmament, and within the security side of things, because space debris is also created as a result of the number of ASAT tests and such kind of activities in outer space. So I think it's going to be very difficult to bridge the gap between these two philosophical approaches um, uh, propounded by two sets of uh, countries and as a two groups of countries. So you have one school of thought which believes that you do not discuss space debris and such kind of things within COPUS, uh, within CD and the other belief. But I think there is also a larger difference between uh, two, uh, two of these uh, two schools in a sense. One school of thought which is um, which believes that legally binding verifiable measures are uh, what is required to keep space secure, safe, and sustainable. Uh, but there is another group, uh, predominantly the Western countries, uh, which believe that uh, legally binding measures are not going to be able to be, uh, are not going to be developed in the near term. And therefore, and otherwise also, they have a preference for 
normative exercise, which is to go for transparency and confidence building measures, TCBMs. And uh, I so far have found such difficulty um, to bring some sort of consensus, some sort of an agreement between these two groups to sort of uh, find some compromise to say that, okay, fine, maybe TCBMs are the first step towards a, a sort of a developing a, a legally binding mechanism and so on and so forth. So on any number of issues, whether it is space debris, space de defining some of these key concepts, whether it is uh, space debris, space weapon, defensive use of outer space, peaceful use of outer space, or none of these issues, there is clarity on what needs to be done. But I believe that if for any future uh, mechanism, whether it is a normative kind of a, a mechanism or a legally binding measure, you have to have a sense of clarity. And unless you have the definitional clarity on what each of these terms mean to your countries, it is going to be very difficult to come out with an effective measure because you don't know what you're trying to limit or what you're trying to control. And unless you define and say, this is exactly what we are trying to limit through this particular TCBM or through this particular legally binding measure. And given the kind of uh, uh, challenges in developing consensus, consensus among the major powers today, I find it extremely challenging to develop a sort of a, any sort of measure, rules of the road uh, for outer space activities in the near term. It's going to be, it's unfortunate that countries have come to this particular uh, state of the uh, play, uh, and that's um, most of these difficulties are driven by the geopolitical issues, not because the countries do not understand the challenges um, uh, of uh, um, challenges of these kind of uh, activities or kind of these new threats and challenges, but the fact is that they do not want to agree to it. There are also disagreements among states in terms of what are the challenges. Uh, for instance, um, Russia, China, and a group of other countries believe that weaponization of space uh, is, or arms control, arms race in outer space is a much bigger challenge. They do not see space debris as a big challenge. Uh, whereas there is another group of countries which believe that space debris is already a huge challenge today and that there has to be something done about it today itself. In fact, uh, um, Daniel Porras, uh, who used to be with UNIDER and now he's with the Secure World Foundation, he and I uh, brought out an uh, edited book a few years ago uh, when there was this uh, European Union had proposed an international code of conduct for outer space. So we had brought out a book compiling views from a number of different officials as well as some from the think tank world policy community. Uh, one of the chapters was written by uh, an Ecuadorian official. His chapter title was, It Happened to Us. Essentially, he was referring to the fact that their one and only satellite was hit by a space debris. So he knows, he knew that what he was talking about, the space debris for him, for Ecuadorians, it was already a huge challenge destroying one of their, one, one and only satellite at that point of time. So in a sense, space debris is a challenge that is not for tomorrow. It is a challenge from yesterday onwards and it's playing, it's becoming much larger a problem already today. And unless you are able to kind of uh, deal with it, 
uh, this is going to be a serious issue in a sense. Uh, whereas Russia, China um, combined have a, a sort of a uh, emphasis on, for instance, um, uh, arms race as the uh, bigger challenge. So there are problems among, this, among these key space players in identifying and agree, agreeing upon which are the challenges first and foremost. Then, of course, what are the possible ways, possible solutions uh, going into the future? Again, the, like I said, the two philosophical schools of thought, one which believes that legally binding mechanisms are the best way to go about. The second school of thought, which believes that transparency and confidence building measures are the best ways. Um, in 2018, in, in the preparatory work uh, towards the UNGG, there was a meeting in Beijing, which I had gone to, uh, which was a UN meeting. Um, and so there was a, even a proposal at that stage to say, maybe we can have legally binding, legal TCBMs. So it, it is still a transparency and confidence building measure. Those are TCBMs, but you can have some sort of a legally binding mechanism attached to it so that there is sanctity to it. Because many of the opponents to TCBM say that what's the validity of a TCBM if you cannot hold a country uh, responsible, if you, if you can't con hold a country responsible, for instance, if they have violated a particular commitment. So, so uh, the proposal was that, okay, fine, we will introduce a legal element to these TCBMs so that you can hold that particular country responsible should they, uh, should it, uh, break down a uh, break a commitment or something of that kind but again building consensus on this particular issue again has been uh, hugely problematic and i don't think uh, you have seen uh, much of a much of an uh, positive um, uh, ground to it uh, i'm not sure um, how long we are going to wait before we are ready to develop an effective rules of the road for outer space because space is not going to wait. Space um, is getting more crowded uh, to use the cl most cliched thing. Uh, space is crowded, congested and contested given the geopolitical tensions, but that's also true. So unless you take the concerted, make a concerted effort uh, to regulate certain, certain activities, bring about certain restraining effect on certain states from engaging in certain irresponsible activities. Uh, you are going to be a landing in a space where you may not be able to access outer space in an uninterrupted fashion uh, for a very long time. Raji, you talked about several forums, including uh, you know, UN Corpus, uh... Uh, the Conference on Disarmament, uh, PAROS, uh, group of governmental experts, so many of them. So the uh -huh. question is, uh, you know, why do you have so many of these forums discussing space security and how successful are they and what has been India's role in them? So in terms of forums, there are two major ones, which is uh, the one in Vienna, which is the UN COPUS, the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. Uh, the security side of space and the arms control aspects of outer space are discussed in Geneva at the CD, or the Conference of Disarmament in Geneva. So these are the two bodies primarily responsible for outer space activities. Then you have the first committee, UN first committee, and the uh, fourth committee, again, dealing with various aspects of space. But when it comes to two major institutions discussing space activities, the COPUS and the CD are the pertinent ones. The PAROS is a sort of an instrument that is still being developed, uh, but it doesn't have the requested support. So PAROS is not necessarily an institutional mechanism, but it's more of a, a sort of a, uh, something like the OST, uh, Outer Space Treaty, still being developed. 
uh, it's been getting uh, it's been talked about for the most uh, more than three decades but it still doesn't have the uh, kind of support that is required uh, to make it into a sort of a living organism so to say uh, so paros has been being like i said uh, it hasn't had a substantive discussion uh, in places like the cd for the longest time because and cd itself has been in a state of stalemate uh, for more than uh, for more than 20 years now the last uh, serious item that was discussed in cd was in 1996 the ctbt the comprehensive test ban treaty after that there has not been and even then it was becoming a serious problem and that's why the ctbt and some of these debates uh, went into other platforms and so on and so forth um so the cd has been in a sort of in a state state of stalemate for more than two decades to the point that they do not even agree upon an actionable agenda for the firm, for the platform so there is nothing that is significantly uh, going to change within the cd in the immediate uh, in, in the immediate uh, future uh, i've seen many efforts taken by some of the governments to see in fact even bringing civil uh, civil society interactions to see if the civil society can come out with a new formula on how the cd can be made to uh, work in a unified fashion in an effective fashion but again um, I was part of that particular exercise I think this was about three or four years ago but again nothing has changed nothing has changed there so I am very doubtful that uh, things are going to change in that fashion uh, within within the within the near uh, near term so to say um, so the number of platforms that are debating space are still limited and uh, uh, it's but I think we need uh, Okay, let me put it this way. The great power competition is what is hindering the process of developing any, any space regime. That is uh, the kind of competition that is there between the US, between the US and China, for instance, uh, US and Russia, or uh, things of that kind. It's not going to get easy in the, in the immediate time frame. I don't see a significant change in the bilateral or multilateral relations between some of these key players, in a sense. Which means that I also feel that uh, this is something that I've been trying to uh, come up with the writing uh, to say that there is space, there is scope, uh, space for a, sort of a, some of the middle power countries, middle, play, middle space players uh, to come together to work out some of the technology aided solutions in outer space governance. Uh, if you're if you're able to provide some of the uh, if you're able to invest for instance to start with uh, in some of the technologies and verifiable uh, means to understand what is going on in outer space uh, use technology to verify if somebody is uh, is engaged in a space weaponization activity on uh, or not i think that can be a possibly a starting point uh, to building some sort of consensus at a later stage among the great players. So I do believe that you need to be more innovative. You need to bring in certain outside, outside voices, outside perspectives, because if you're going to leave it to the great powers to talk to each other and develop the consensus um, among themselves to uh, develop certain rules of the road for space, uh, I think uh, that's not going to happen for at least for the next uh, couple of decades for sure. Raji, of course, you know, when, uh, com uh, when a country flies a particular satellite, uh, no one polices what they put in that satellite or how, you know, what is exactly going on in that particular satellite. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if a country X, you know, flies a certain satellite, it has certain capabilities or even a certain weapon for that matter. A country Y, it's very hard for a country Y to decide, you know, what kind of payload or what kind of, uh, uh, you know, 
system capabilities that particular satellite has. So the whole nature of this uh, makes it very hard for countries to police on each other as to what assets they have flying. Yeah. Uh, so how do countries you know, manage this kind of uh, lack of transparency? So I think currently, for instance, um, so I think this is again, okay, uh, when we were debating under the UNGG. So the UNGG is again, not an institution, like, uh, sorry, I left this bit on the previous question. So the UNGG is again, is not an institution per se, but this was a, sort of an innovative uh, measure, uh, initiative taken by the United Nations to uh, start some formal talks on some of the uh, critical space security related issues. Uh, there was a UNGG a few years ago in 2013-14 on TCBMs, Transparency and Confidence Building Measures. And in 2018-19, this was on PAROs. So and the uh, UNGGs have been formed on other areas as well. Uh, you had one on lethally autonomous weapon system, the laws. Uh, you have something on cyber issues. So there have been uh, every now and then uh, the UN uh, takes the initiative to develop these kind of institute, these GGs, so that you are able to have focused discussions on a particular theme. So that's that's something that has been uh, that's been happening for a while, um, and I think that's uh, that's a good way to at least generate some good focused discussions in a sense. Currently, the ITU, uh, the International Telecommunication Union, so they allot uh, the orbital slots to a particular country. And they are supposed to manage in terms of these uh, satellite operations of that kind. Uh, they are supposed to regulate uh, the operations to a large extent. But as part of the five, uh, five agreements that are in place, um, in line with the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, one of the agreements is that registration agreement, um, uh, registration convention. Under this particular instrument, a state is supposed to give full information of a satellite that is going to be launched, for instance. Uh, today, the problem is that countries are not providing the full information. So in fact, they would just give the bare minimum information to say that their satellite is particular so-and-so satellite is going to be launched on such and such date, and maybe at best give the orbital slot where it's going to be launched, but not in terms of what is the purpose of the satellite and so on and so forth. So today, I think even, uh, even a complete ex implementation of ex the existing agreements, if that is done, I think that itself can contribute to greater transparency and confidence uh, measure in outer space activities. Because today you, you, have, you don't have much of an idea as to what is going on with somebody else's as, as space activities. Uh, what somebody else is up to. And there are complications also, not in just term, terms of um, states carrying what payloads, if they have disclosed the full information or not, that is one. But you have many, uh, and these are mostly in the case of Western countries, they launch sort of commercial companies launching military payloads. So payloads, military payloads for a particular government. So there are, um, so it's just, no, and also, uh, states as well as private sector players carrying mixed payloads. So a satellite can take actually both a civilian payload as well as a military payload. So there are, it's, uh, the satellite operations, space operations have become a lot more complex. The entry of different sets of players and also carrying mixed payloads and so on and so forth have made the space operation a lot trickier. So suppose somebody wants to target a particular state's asset. Um, 
maybe state X wants to target uh, state uh, Z's um, asset that is being launched. But tomorrow, if that is and under the assumption that that is a mix, a military payload that is being carried or a spy satellite or whatever, whatever, whatever thing. But the fact is that if it, is, if it has a mixed payload, how that's going to be interpreted as, that is one set of issues. A second, a more pertinent issue is also a private sector company is launching a military payload for a particular state. And if a particular, uh, that particular operation has been attacked, targeted by state X, how should the private sector respond? How, how should this targeted states should respond to this? Again, these are uh, completely gray areas with no clear understanding at this point of time in terms of what is to be done. There is a broader understanding that whatever happens and whoever is going to run, for instance, uh, even if it's a private sector that is going to be uh, running a certain set of activities, it is the states that are at the end of the day responsible uh, for, their, for, for their activities as well. But I think uh, it's easier said than done. And these are theoretically that is understanding. But in practical terms, when something happens, how these are going to be tackled, how these are going to be addressed, uh, it's still not very clear in a sense. So I think, and I think this is becoming a, a lot more problematic, for instance, cyber operations in space and how that can kind of very quickly possibly can contribute to conflict escalation. Uh, because I think there are a couple of different questions, important questions to look at uh, before one can actually get to the escalation point. I think there are issues there. It's not as simple, but I think there are, the, it, it, this will again fall into the gray zone issues in a sense. For instance, what should be the criteria for deciding that a cyber attack has actually taken place? And then building a consensus among states on that particular question, again, it's not going to be an easy task. Um, and it is likely that most states will agree that an attack has, a cyber attack has taken place on a particular space object. Uh, if it leads to physical destruction of space assets or cause fatality of some kind to sit uh, individuals. But it is possibly a lot more difficult to reach an agreement um, on this particular question when a state or a private sector has used cyber measures only to tamper with or to steal data or interfere with a, a sort of command and control system, but this does not lead to physical destruction of a space objects or something of that kind. And I think so that's, uh, these are issues that are making it a lot more complicated uh, and uh, we still do not have how um, states should respond. It is unclear how states subject to such attacks, cyber attacks, for instance, or an electronic attack can respond in a manner that would be considered legitimate under international law, what level of proof is required before a response is initiated, and what might cause exactly, for instance, proportionality in such responses. Uh, because the international humanitarian law, IHL, has also been kind of uh, poking its head in the space security debates, uh, again, with uh, varying uh, different uh, interpretations among states and how IHL, the international human international humanitarian law, should be applied uh, in these kind of things. So, we are looking at uh, the space is getting so much more complicated with no clear understanding of how it should be governed, uh, what are the rules of the road, uh, whether we are ready to form rules of the road. Uh, on none of these issues, there is uh, a clear um, sort of a consideration at this point of time. But I think India's own approach, for instance, I believe. 
uh, India is becoming a lot more pragmatic. Uh, for instance, I was again part of the, some of the debates when the uh, the International Code of Conduct uh, out of Outer Space Activities, those debates were going on in 2011 to uh, 12 to 12 to 14. Uh, right now, it is in a state of coma. I don't think it is going to ever come out of the coma. Uh, but uh, in the initial, those stages in 2013-14 meetings, uh, India had approached uh, the ICOC, the International Code of Conduct for Outer Space Activities, from a very pragmatic sense, wherein it took part in these, all of these debates. There were three open-ended concentrations that happened. Uh, we were party to all of them. We uh, uh, made uh, actively um, sort of active comments on each of these um, sessions, uh, each of these issues. Uh, but, and with the understanding that we might start with the code of conduct or some sort of a voluntary measure, a political instrument, before actually developing the uh, sort of a confidence and trust in each other to develop something like a legally binding measure. So India is beginning to see some of these, and of course, India's own neighborhood is changing in a big way uh, in terms of security, geopolitical issues, not just related to space alone, but even in larger, uh, broader geopolitical terms. So India is beginning to have a much more pragmatic approach to, um, to security, uh, including in outer space. Excellent, uh, Raji. I think these uh, insights are actually really, really fascinating to learn from an Indian uh, perspective. So one of the things that you, you, know, you talked about is how countries manage their policy and so on. So when you look at uh, what India has done with the nuclear policy, where they say no first use and you know, almost every sure. Indian knows about this. Uh, yes. What about having a space security policy for uh, India as a country? And who's responsible for it to you know, come through? I think this has been debated for so long, at least in the, in the, among the uh, community outside the um, uh, establishment, so to say, whether it is uh, ISRO or the Ministry of External Affairs and kind of, or the DRDO. Uh, but outside of, outside of the, some of these major establishments, I think this has been part of the public policy debate that India needs a space security policy in place. Uh, India needs a comprehensive space policy for sure. Uh, but we also need something very clearly spelt out in terms of where we are, in terms of our capabilities, in terms of what we, what we, where we want to go, what kind of uh, space environment that we want to see, and how that needs to be uh, developed and nurtured in a sense. And I don't think we have clarity on many of these aspects. But I think India is kind of beginning to put in place some of the uh, building blocks, so to say, over the last. Uh, close to two decades. Um, again, going back to the Chinese anti-satellite test in 2007, January, uh, that prompted India to first come up with one of the institutional measures called the Integrated Defense Space Cell uh, within the Integrated Defense Headquarters. Uh, that was the first baby step that India took in terms of building and uh, developing an institutional kind of framework. Uh, thereafter, now, come fast forward to now, uh, I think we have set up the uh, a tri-service defense space agency. That's been a useful step, but I think that is still taking time to actually get set in place and uh, uh, its mandate is somewhat clear, but I think there are issues that still need to be thrashed out. But the need for a space policy cannot be substituted by the institutional mechanisms. And I think uh, I'm not entirely clear as to why India has been so hesitant. Because when I talk to a lot of senior individual officers within the ISRO and other places, they all see the benefit to India coming out with a space policy articulation. So I'm like, where is the, where is the hurdle then? Where are we getting stuck? And why is that 
uh, we have we don't have and i i remember going to some of the military institutions for some uh, for some uh, sort of a, uh, for some uh, speech uh, sort of remarks out there from the lectures there and uh, each each time when I interact with the army or the air force, they have said, oh, we have just given our set of comments from our feedback and comments on the space policy, but it's still not out. Um, it's, uh, uh, but I think it's the need of the artist is for to have one uh, comprehensive space policy and also a security military space policy, because I think uh, it will send a clear message to <clears throat> uh, one's own, I think they can bring about one institutional and functional clarity in terms of India's own uh, goals and aspirations. Second, it can also be used as a message for uh, a tool for messaging both to your friends as well as your adversary. I think that is also a sort of a, a space policy should also be used as a messaging tool. And I think that's ex become extremely critical uh, in the Indo-Pacific neighborhood with the kind of uh, security competition that, uh, that is kind of picking up every single day. Um, so I think India being hesitant about these things is not being helpful. Uh, India needs to have its doctrine, its strategy in place. Uh, but uh, right after the Indian ASAT test in March 2019, uh, the NSA was apparently uh, had, had apparently given some direction uh, to say that India should develop a, something like a space doctrine, just like the nuclear weapon, uh, nuclear doctrine that we have, the draft nuclear doctrine, which actually spelled out the NFU policy, the no first use policy. But my sense is that space is somewhat slightly different from nuclear in that in many ways, and therefore, uh, actually talking about operationalizing anti-satellite capability is is not a healthy thing it's it's actually destabilizing it's dangerous so far there are three countries that have demonstrated asat capability you have us russia and china none of these countries have operationalized these capabilities and given it to the various um, military commands to uh, actually um, start using them so for india to think about maybe india had not given very because this came a few days after the asat test so maybe we didn't we hadn't given the, in, uh, much of thought in how this is to be used and asat is also seen as a weapon of deterrence not exactly to be used because that is only we are going to further pollute the outer space also and also give uh, way to much more dangerous consequences in terms of our activities in our space um, so I think we need to be clear about how ASATs are not to be used. ASATs are not operational um, sort of weapons in that sense. It is to send a message. And the message for India, for instance, that, for instance with the 19, uh, to 2019 uh, Mission Shakti was very clear that it was sending a message to China that if you think of messing around with our satellites, we have precisely that technology to mess around with your satellites. So, you know, don't, don't do that. Don't engage in uh, that kind of an activity with regard to Indian satellites. So that was a message for China and that, that has been delivered. So you, you, you need not really go about operationalizing that capability and give way to more destabilizing consequences uh, in outer space, making, making more, uh, making uh, space a lot more uh, trickier and uh, dangerous a place. So I think we need to be clear about, um, clearly we need a space policy, but operationalizing ASATs and such kind of counter space capabilities should not become part of those kind of strategies. 
So do you see a role for uh, you know, countries like India, France, US, uh, Japan, Australia to coming together to do something uh, related to space security that uh, you know, protects the assets of these countries together? Absolutely. I think, uh, in fact, uh, we've, um, ORF uh, is also part of uh, sort of uh, uh, working together with the Australian think tank uh, on a lot of technologies, not just space, uh, but a number of different uh, existing and emerging technologies and looking at it in the context of these changing geopolitics and to see whether there is a scope for countries like India and Australia, but also a, an expanded group, including countries like Indonesia, maybe Singapore, maybe uh, Japan, for instance, South Korea, and uh, the US, of course. Can these countries come together in developing technology policies, one, but also make technology easily accessible to a large number of countries um, in the Indo-Pacific region? Because technology are, is unevenly available in the region. And that's a, there is a serious problem in terms of access to technology. Access to technology in the Indo-Pacific region or anywhere else is uneven. So how can India and other countries take the leading in making access to technology easier for many of these countries? And I think there is a way to do that. Uh, if India is able to kind of, uh, India is one of the more established powers in this regard, India can collaborate with uh, Japan and use some of the existing uh, uh, platforms. So in Asia, in the Asia Pacific scene, there are two, um, two organizations. One is the APSCO under the Chinese leadership. And then you have the APRSAF. Again, that's something for the regional space security cooperation, um, uh, space cooperation. So uh, India can actually use some of the existing uh, institutional mechanisms in Asia to uh, uh, sort of uh, give way for uh, more cooperation among countries and so on and so forth, especially bring in some of the um, uh, some of the smaller powers who are in need of uh, developing these capabilities but do not have the uh, access to capabilities or the training and the institutions ne uh, necessary for this. Um, so there is scope for these countries to come together. There is also scope for many of the private sector enterprises in these countries to come together because uh, especially in dealing with in addressing challenges from the counter space capabilities, whether it is uh, cyber, electronic warfare, each of these um, uh, capabilities and how that plays out in our space. I think private sector has also invested a great deal in terms of developing countermeasures and so on and so forth. So involving the private sector from these countries to develop effective uh, deterrent measures as well as sort of uh, uh, countermeasures to in a collaborative fashion for the region. Uh, there is so there is scope for um, from for across the board in terms of spreading um, technologies to uh, smaller countries but also in terms of developing countermeasures to some of the major uh, space security threats and challenges uh, there as well there is a, uh, there's a possibility. And the third, of course, is the um, governance aspect, the global governance. Again, um, uh, Indo-Pacific has some of the major middle space players like India, Australia, Japan. I think these three countries, for instance, can actually take the, um, take the lead. But I think in terms of even the, I forgot to mention one other aspect that's related to collaboration um, to for um, stepping up uh, aid to aid and assistance to some of the smaller countries, is the need for these countries to actually put together a technology fund. Some sort of a technology fund can also be collaborate, uh, can also be developed by some of the major players in Indo-Pacific area. And uh, so that you're, you do have sufficient funds to kind of um, you know, step up your uh, assistance to some of the smaller countries. So are there, I think there are, there are a range of areas that in terms of policy, in terms of technology, 
but in also in terms of uh, cooperation and uh, collaboration uh, that can actually uh, work in the Indo-Pacific region. So the final question, Raji, is uh, of course the podcast is actually having a lot of listeners who are you know young and motivated to step up into the space uh, activities realm. So where can people learn a lot more about space, uh, you know, security and be involved as a part of the whole space security community uh, as young people? So I think uh, uh, there are a number of uh, space um, specific think tanks. Uh, and other institutions that are coming up. Um, space used to be considered, is generally considered a lot more niche area. Uh, but even then, I think there are a number of institutions, educational institutions, as well as think tanks, both within India and also across the, uh, across the world, practically. Um, there are, uh, within ORF, there's a small uh, initiative we, have, we run uh, looking at the space and some of the other technology issues. Uh, there are other universities. Amity is doing some amazing program with, with regard to their uh, aerospace and uh, science and technology program. Uh, there are other institutions, of course, uh, that are also coming up. So there, there are few places that are available, uh, places like IDSA, the Institute for Defense Studies Analysis. So there are, for youngsters who are just passing out from um, college and kind of thing, I think these can be uh, the first places to um, step into, just get a sense of the policy, space security, policy debates, and so on and so forth. Um, see whether this is something that they feel uh, comfortable with and so on and so forth. Then there are globally, I think uh, there are a number of different institutions, Secure World Foundation, uh, which is a US-based uh, space-specific think tank, uh, has been doing uh, some amazing work in this regard. Um, CSIS, the Center for Inter Strategic and International Studies, uh, again, a DC, Washington DC based think tank. In fact, uh, both of these uh, think tanks have been coming out with a space, uh, from a space security perspective, something really worth the uh, uh, important. Uh, they have been for the last, I think, two years, two or three years, I think three years in a row, they have come out with a global assessment on counter space capabilities. Um, so, you know, there are a number of different agencies, um, institutions that are beginning to now work on uh, space uh, across the board, but I think uh, space security is also beginning to assume a significant chunk of their work. Um, so I think there is, uh, there's nothing that could, uh, that could possibly stop the young minds from entering this domain. It's an interesting domain and there are a lot of interesting debates. Uh, it's challenging, but I think there are also, you can come up with innovative measures, innovative thinking in how some of the old challenges can be dealt with and kind of thing. So it's an interesting and challenging at the same time. Thank you very much, Raghiji. It's been a very insightful uh, you know, episode discussing so many uh, different aspects of state security. And you know, let's Thanks. hope that you know, the whole policy issue matures over time. And uh, you know, we should do, do a follow-up episodes on many of the other issues that we possibly missed. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on this, uh, this show. And I would love to do a yeah, follow-up uh, conversation at, uh, at some stage in the future. And uh, looking forward to it. Thank you so much again. Yeah, I just also want to plug in the Kalpana Chawla Space uh, Policy Dialogue here. And uh, you know, you've been doing a lot of uh, great work with creating that platform. And today, I guess, uh, that platform has matured as the most uh, significant platform right. for space policy dialogue in India. And, uh, right. and that I've had always a pleasure of attending it. And uh, I, I also recommend people to come to Delhi to attend that. Thank you so much for the shout out. And uh, yeah, it's been, it has emerged as a major platform bringing together all the different uh, stakeholders from everybody from commercial world to 
uh, security and safety and space exploration uh, folks to everyone. So uh, it's been a fascinating journey. We have done five editions. So uh, yeah, I look forward to continuing that conversation, uh, keep that conversation uh, floating alive. Thanks so much, Narayan. Thank yeah. you.